Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Today we're going to talk about Apple unifying its app stores and now enabling developers to create bundle packages where I can uh, have one app that works across iOS, macOS, uh, and actually Apple TV. So this is an initiative they've been working on for a while. Uh, they've actually released it to the surprise of their developer community ahead of schedule. It's coming out in, I believe, March. And um, this is good for the Mac because now they're going to bring more supply. They have many more apps and much you know, more robust app community for the iPhone than they do on the Mac. They just have more demand there. So now they're going to be able to bring more supply to the Mac App Store. They're unifying the Mac App Store and iOS App Store. So they're going to be able to bring more demand to uh, these developers. They're going to make it easier for developers to extend apps and make them kind of cross-platform. And to, to kind of represent this, they are adding new categories in the Mac App Store like food and drink, books, magazines and newspapers and shopping. So that'll be pretty interesting to see um, how these two things come together. It's a great example of something that Apple can do that I think Android is very hard for Android to do something like this, near impossible for Android to do something like this. And the reason is because um, Apple's controlling the hardware. Uh, Apple's controlling the hardware and um, Android just doesn't have the capability to do something like that. Something we've spoken about with Huawei, Huawei has tried to go up against um, Google and create an alternative to Android after the Trump administration sanctioned Huawei and now their smartphones can't use the Google Play services and, and have basically... Um, created a big problem for all of Huawei's smartphones outside of China. The new news is that Huawei has done a deal with TomTom to get some killer apps around navigation. Like, you know, they need to create an alternative to Google Maps. They've said we're going to have a $1.5 billion kind of app fund to help developers uh, modify their apps so they can work with the Harmony OS. But the really big news is that uh, there's an alliance that's being formed amongst three of the five largest uh, smartphone manufacturers in the world. All three of these are Chinese smartphone manufacturers. And you have Huawei, obviously, Xiaomi, and Oppo and Vivo, which are both owned by a company called BBK. Collectively, these three manufacturers account for 40% of global smartphone shipments. And so really what Huawei needed to tap into here was demand. You know, $1.5 billion app fund isn't going to get get hundreds of thousands of, of app developers to modify their apps to work for the Harmony OS. But pooling together 40% of the demand for uh, smartphones, that's much better. Now, what's interesting is that Android also has an alliance. It's called the Open Handset Alliance. And that handset alliance means that if you're in it, you can get access to Android and all of these premium play services. So the Google Play Store, Maps, all of the um, kind of more robust SDKs and APIs. So if you're an app developer and you want to handle location or payments or all this other functionality that Android has built in for its developers, you can easily make these calls and 
can just make much better apps. You cannot get access to these capabilities unless you are using the Google Play kind of premium, Google uh, Play premium services, and you need to be in the Open Handset Alliance to get access to those. When you're in the Open Handset Alliance, you have to pledge to Google that you will only build phones using Android. You can't use anyone else. That's why when Amazon was trying to bring the Amazon Fire Phone, they couldn't use any of the major Korean smartphone manufacturers because they were all in the Open Handset Alliance and were making Android phones, which meant they could not help Amazon with the Kindle phone. Nokia, for example, uh, Microsoft locked up Nokia to make um, phones for, for Windows Phone and, and tried to build that alliance, but it just wasn't enough to overcome the dominance of iOS and Android, right? The name of the show is winner take all, which means there's only one or two dominant winners. Certainly smartphone operating systems fits that model. And we're trying to see Huawei buck the trend with a third competitive operating system. Or are we? Now, this alliance, where is it going to take place? We've spoken many times on the show that the battle between U.S. and Chinese tech monopolies is not taking place in the U.S. or in China. It's taking place in emerging markets like exactly the nine regions that this alliance is supposed to partake in, which is India, Indonesia, and Russia. So now you're seeing the battle take place in emerging markets. So let's look at India, right? What is not said in, in this alliance is that basically they're saying, oh, we want to help developers of games, music, movies, and other apps to market their apps in overseas markets. What they're not saying is that eventually all of these smartphone manufacturers would want to jump ship from Android and use Harmony OS. They make it as a sub bullet here all the way down. Secondly, oh, it's to start to build some more negotiating power against Google. Obviously, that's the whole point of this. They want to get off of Android, both for probably economic reasons and, you know, to help Huawei and other national reasons. Um, and this alliance is the way to do it. Now, if you're Google and Oppo, Vivo and Xiaomi, you know, outside of China, these smartphones are using Android. They have devices in the United States. So if you're Google, you need to make it very clear to them that if these companies go and use Harmony OS in India, for example, that they're going to be cut off from using Android in the United States. And Google needs to try and really drive a dagger through this alliance. This alliance is the biggest threat, not the other stuff that Huawei is doing. This alliance is easily the biggest threat to try to um, usurp the, the dominance that Android has and to try and convince other app developers to build their apps into a competitive operating systems like Harmony OS. So we'll see where that goes. Um, <clears throat> let's look at B2B marketplaces in the ag industry. There's two unicorns. It's the two largest B2B marketplaces in the United States are both in the ag space, Indigo and FBN, Farmers Business Net Network. We've covered both of them many times on the show. Um, the main marketplace activity, you know, where there's a lot of fragmentation is on average, it takes six to seven different touches from the point of the crop that a farmer grows to that end food manufacturer, right? It's changing hands six or seven different times. There's a lot of fragmentation. There's a lot of lack of pricing transparency. A centralized marketplace helps to remove that friction. And that's what marketplaces do. 
What these two businesses also do is they help provide the seeds and the fertilizer and the chemicals and the other products and services that farmers are using to actually grow crops. And so that's where this antitrust news comes out of, which is that FBN bought a retailer in Canada that supplies these products and fertilizer and seeds, et cetera, to farmers. The manufacturers of these things predominantly, you know, Cargill, Bayer, Bayer bought Monsanto a few years ago. There's a lot of consolidation in the seed fertilizer space. There's really only a handful of these companies that make all these products. So there's no fragmentation. So to me, this is a not a great marketplace opportunity, you know, all the products and services going to the farmer. A. B, this doesn't seem like too much of a material antitrust activity as we've seen, say, with other large tech monopolies that have a much more dominant share uh, of the market. So we'll see what happens with this. I don't think there's as much meat here for these incumbents in terms of them having broken any antitrust laws. However, if you are an incumbent B2B distributor in the ag space, which Cargill is, which Bungie is, which ADM, Archer Daniel Midland is, where there's a lot of fragmentation, where there is a lot of lack of pricing, tr- pricing transparency, where a marketplace can drive a lot of value both to the producer and the consumer. That is really where there's a much uh, bigger area of concern for these incumbents rather than uh, where there's much more consolidated supply, which is all the um, really downstream activities here that that are being supplied to the farmers initially. Um, So a few weeks ago, I was in DC and I was talking to, I was giving a speech to the National Association of of Wholesale Executives Summit. And we were talking about B2B distribution and the role that large incumbent B2B distributors have and the value that they have, right? And so um, what we were talking about is that what we've seen in China is that there are large dominant B2B marketplaces that are across multiple verticals, uh, like in Alibaba with Taobao and, and its different markets, marketplaces. But you're also seeing the rise of vertical specific B2B marketplaces. You see them in metal or construction or fashion or agriculture or food or textiles and a bunch of other verticals. So we can see that Marketplaces, and these many of these are unicorns, can be quite successful if they focus on one or a couple specific verticals of B2B distribution. And so, so we've also seen this in the United States in B2C, where you have Farfetch, uh, which is in Platt, which is around luxury goods. You have sneaker marketplaces, you have jewelry marketplaces, you have a variety of vertical specific mar- marketplaces which can carve out their territory from the large dominant marketplace monopolies like Amazon and can still do quite well. The same trend is coming to B2B distribution and where we see a future where you do have Amazon business and Walmart business and eBay business and Alibaba, but you can also have vertical specific B2B marketplace winners. And so if you're a large incumbent B2B distributor, how are you using the assets that you have and the leverage that you have and getting the most value for those assets. 
And basically, we looked at the landscape for B2B product marketplaces. This, and this area has actually been underinvested. A lot of VC firms don't really want to invest in tech startups that don't have one but multiple tech monopolies already competing against them. So there actually should be many more B2B marketplaces than there are today. And that means that, A, you actually have even more leverage and even more value that you can bring to existing marketplaces. Every marketplace is trying to solve for the same thing. It's the chicken and egg problem. It's scale. I need demand and I need supply and I need to play this chicken and egg game back and forth. Large incumbent B2B distributors have a lot of advantages. They have demand. They have supply. They have data on pricing. They have value-added services around credit or fulfillment and logistics. They have a brand not to be underestimated, and they have a balance sheet. And how can you leverage these things to help whatever that dominant B2B marketplace is in your vertical? How can you either own it or partner or invest to make sure that your business owns uh, either that marketplace outright or at least a considerable stake in the up-and-coming dominant marketplace in your vertical? Now, what if there isn't a good marketplace that is of scale that you could get involved in? Well, um, there are a lot of opportunities with different SaaS companies. So there are digital e-commerce companies, right? These aren't marketplaces. They don't have supply from third-party sellers, but maybe they have more scale than the marketplace does. Maybe they have a lot of digital demand, but they don't have the supply dynamic, right? There's also a lot of SaaS B2B tools. Some of these tools are vertical specific, like we have some examples in building materials or construction. Some of these tools are across multiple verticals and solve different parts of the value chain, whether that's setting up storefronts or finding products, sourcing products, pricing products, managing different workflows in the industry. So there's different tools here that are uh, SaaS tools that can help solve for supply. And the point of this is to look at Walmart. And so in Walmart's Q3 2019 earnings, Doug McMillan, the CEO, said we added 10 million SKUs to Walmart.com. 9.5 million of those SKUs actually came from third-party sellers, not Walmart itself. 500,000 of those SKUs were only added to Walmart's balance sheet. 500,000 of those SKUs are actually what Walmart's internal buyers were sourcing and then reselling. But the vast majority of those products came from third-party sellers. And you can see here on this chart, the blue is all the total products that Walmart's selling and the yellow is the first-party products. The blue line starts to go up basically after Walmart bought Jet.com in, in June of 2016. And Doug's response to that was, yeah, that was good, but we need to move faster, right? So the challenge I gave all of the distributors at this conference was, how do you add millions of SKUs to your e-commerce, to your website in 12 months. You can't just add a few hundred thousand. You need to add millions of SKUs. And why do you need to add millions of SKUs? Why do you need to let in third-party sellers to sell and compete with your internal buyers? Because the answer is simple. The customer wins. When the customer gets a wider product selection, which it will by definition of adding millions of SKUs, that's point one. And point two is when the customer gets the best prices, which the customer will, because now you have all these third-party sellers competing with each other on those 9.5 million SKUs that they added. And for the existing products that you're already selling, your buyers are sourcing themselves, 
they are going to be competing on price with the third-party sellers. So how good are your internal buyers? The point of that is the customer wins. They get the best prices and the widest product selection. And that's exactly what they want. So you have to do this because the customer wins. And it's inevitable because we're seeing B2B marketplaces already in many of these verticals and B2B distribution. It's just a matter of who's going to be the winner, who's going to be that winner take all uh, uh, dominant player. And the last lesson is just to not be like McDonald's. So there's a variety of different ways that you can extract value for the assets that if, that if you're an incumbent distributor, you have today. Owning it outright is one example that's on one end of the spectrum. That's the Walmart example. But there's other invest options. There's partner and JV options. Zelle's a good example where a bunch of the banks, you know, uh, came together and they bought a payment platform. And now they embedded this payment platform into all of their banking infrastructure. And today, Zelle has way more volume than Venmo does, which is owned by PayPal. So if there is an acquisition that needs to be done, how can incumbents come together, partner up and spread that risk out? And by the way, when you are partnering up together, you're just bringing that much more demand and supply to help solve for that chicken and egg problem. But the point here is just not to be like McDonald's. And the problem with McDonald's is that they helped build Uber Eats uh, almost entirely on the back of McDonald's without getting any long-term equity or without getting any long-term value for McDonald's out of that deal. Uber Eats international business was basically built at one point McDonald's accounted for over 10% of the supply of the restaurants on Uber Eats internationally. Not only did it bring them supply, but it brought them the brand and the credibility that it has with consumers internationally, uh, which many of the McDonald's restaurants are actually even more premium internationally than they are in the United States. So they're certainly seen that way. Um, instead, McDonald's got some short-term preferential pricing. They were taking less fees from McDonald's products, but did they get exclusivity for multiple years where they would just work with Uber Eats, which is, they were exclusive with Uber Eats, but was Uber Eats exclusive with them for that same period of time uh, or for years thereafter? No, they didn't. They didn't get it was a very short sighted deal. And McDonald's didn't understand the amount of value that it was bringing to help jumpstart that chicken and egg problem. And once you can kind of get to that point of critical mass as a platform, now McDonald's value is much less. And so what I would say to these B2B distributors the value that B2B distributors have today is only dimin diminishing. It will never be as strong as it is today as other marketplaces gain more power, as they get more demand, as they get more supply. The advantages and value that you bring to the uh, negotiating table is only going down. So how can you make sure that if a B2B marketplace is inevitable in your industry, which it is inevitable in every vertical except for the electronic industry, which I can talk about later. Um, how do you have a piece of whatever that number one or number two B2B marketplace it will be? Last topic is about Epic. So now Epic, we've spoken about Judy Faulkner, the CEO, is trying to get hospital CEOs to sign up and uh, tell the HHS that they need to take four more years to figure out privacy and technical considerations when it comes to enabling patients to get easier access to their health records inside of EHR systems. I mean, it's completely ridiculous. Um, they actually put this here. 
that it, they need at least 12 months to prepare and 36 months to develop new technologies to actually roll this out. So Judy wants four years to comply with all of these things when Apple is already doing this with all scripts, I think the number four or five EHR company. Judy is completely wrong here. I mean, she's the third wealthiest uh, lady in the United States. And the problem with this is you are uh, hurting patients' healthcare options. You, by enabling data, and we've, we've had many episodes on this in the past, by opening up this data, you can lower the cost of care and improve the quality of care. It's literally the double whammy. And so you have 60 hospitals that signed this letter agreeing with Judy. Um, NYU Langone, for example, you know, shame on you. Uh, but the good thing is that really none of the top top hospitals signed this. Mayo isn't on here. Cleveland Clinic isn't on here. Mass General isn't on here. None of the top hospitals signed on to this. Uh, I don't think Kaiser is on here, for example. So that's good news. And, um, you know, I think the the some of the hospitals that do get it have joined this alliance that was created to help put the right rules in place for privacy considerations to be taken into account when you are sharing this data. And so this was put together by some former executives that, you know, come out of government, come out of the healthcare industry, and they've put together this nonprofit to help solve these problems, but do it in an accelerated manner. And you can see that um, Apple's on the board of this, uh, so is Microsoft. Google's a strong supporter, and there's a, and and UPMC is in here, and there's a number of other hospitals that have joined this. Cerner is in here, interestingly enough. The number two EHR behind Epic is in here. So you know, all is not lost on the healthcare incumbents that do see that change is needed and inevitable, by the way, and are getting behind this initiative. Unfortunately for Epic and Judy, they're going to be on the wrong side of history uh, on this one. So that's it for today on for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you so much for joining us and I will talk to you tomorrow.